Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of the 30 Years War is brought to you by Matchlock and the Embassy, a historical fiction series set during the 30 Years War, written by yours truly. I'm really excited about it, and I'm going to talk more about it later, but you should know you can get it everywhere that you can get your books, whether in ebook format or paperback format, with other versions to follow in the future. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 43 of the 30 Years War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 43 of the Thirty Years' War. So last time, we concluded our examination into the Dutch aspect of the war. We discerned that the war for the reclamation of the Netherlands had cost Spain dearly, and in the end would effectively cripple her ability to wage war elsewhere. By late 1629, the Dutch Republic had established itself firmly with some impressive victories on the field, and Frederick Henry's triumphs appeared to seal the fate of the Spanish Netherlands for good. As we also learned, though, religion had an important role to play in what happened next. While they would not fight any more for king or for country, and while the occasional cries in favour of the Prince of Orange could be heard in the streets of Brussels, there was one thing which the population of the Spanish Netherlands would fight for, their Catholic faith. Just like the Emperor had changed the argument by implementing a fundamentalist, Catholic interpretation of justice for Germany, so too did the Dutch government believe that conquest was only half the battle and conversion was the other. The policy of the Dutch was to remove Catholicism from any lands it acquired and to instill Calvinist ministers to convert the population. This meant that any Catholics awaiting the arrival of the Prince of Orange would be faced with a stark choice and it was a choice many could not accept, choosing instead to leave the newly conquered region around North Brabant, anchored by the fortress of Sertigenbosch, and migrate to Brussels. The government of the Spanish Netherlands hung on by a thread, but just as in Germany, religion proved an effective motivating force. Unfortunately for Frederick Henry, his instructions to uproot Catholicism robbed him of the chance to unify the Netherlands for his dynasty just as the Edict of Restitution robbed the Holy Roman Emperor of a total victory. In this episode, religion continues to lurk in the background in another theatre of the war, France. Much like the Dutch story, the story of France and its government's quest to pacify the rebellious Huguenots once and for all has been in the background for quite a while in some other important watershed moments. 
the rebellions took the focus of Cardinal Richelieu off of Germany and forced him to put the French Protestants down. The only way to do this, as King Louis XIII well understood, was to capture the impregnable Huguenot base at La Rochelle. Then and only then would the Huguenots be neutralised and France be empowered to act as a unified state. We're going to look at this story in our narrative today as we tie some more threads together. So I hope you're ready for it as I take you to France. With some writers, he is above humanity, with at least as many far beneath it. And lastly, the man, his policy, his power, together with the personages he was mixed up with and the times he lived in, have proved so attractive to novelists and playwriters that Richelieu has taken a place and a colouring in the minds of general readers, which no sober and honest biographer can hope to remove or equal. In such a way did William Robson begin his biography of Cardinal Richelieu all the way back in 1875. The challenge which faced Robson is no less impressive than that which faces any historian who undertakes a mission to unwrap the nuances and complexities of a character from history. And Cardinal Richelieu was indeed a very complex person. This son of an obscure and poor widow in Poitou rose to establish a premiership which brought France into its glory years. He was neither too vain nor too naive to avoid appointing a successor, Cardinal Mazarin, who carried on his work at the young King Louis XIV's side. He was a visionary and a playwright. He fought tirelessly against the court practice of duelling, but out of a belief that the tradition impugned upon the absolutist traditions of French royal power, rather than due to any moral compunctions. Richelieu, of course, was a cardinal appointed by Rome, and yet he allied France with Protestants in order to bring down the great enemy of Bourbon France, the Habsburgs. While he fought alongside Lutheran King of Sweden and Calvinist Dutch Republic, he worked to suppress the French Protestant Huguenots and reduce their political privileges. He has been called, and is widely considered, a political genius of the First Order, responsible for transforming the disadvantages position which France found herself in, in the early 17th century. As one biographer succinctly phrased it, After the premature death of Henry IV, it was Cardinal Richelieu who, beyond all others, succeeded in detecting the frailties of the enemy. More than anyone else, this political genius knew how to split the power of his opponent, how to rally new enemies against it, to stir up all that was most dangerous in it as a force for self-destruction, to encompass its downfall methodically and unremittingly through the encouragement he gave to the canker which long before had begun to invade the huge body of the Spanish Empire. Richelieu accepted from the beginning that the fulfilment of his ambitions depended upon royal favour, and he would make his name empowering this royal family at the expense of the Spanish Habsburgs. Yet his domestic battles are as remarkable as his exploits in foreign policy, since before he acquired the reins of the latter, he first needed to establish himself and his regime on secure foundations. Richelieu reinforced the absolutist power of King Louis XIII, defeated rival power blocks such as those led by the king's mother, and most infamously destroyed the bastion of the Huguenots upon the seizure of La Rochelle. These acts were all a means to an end, that end being the confrontation of Spain on the European stage, 
and on a scale not seen in history. Richelieu would guide France into war with both branches of the Habsburgs by 1636, but before we reach that point in our narrative, it's important to address how Richelieu established his regime, the challenges he overcame at home, and the proxy wars he fought in the build-up to that great showdown. This story will be abbreviated for the sake of necessity, but visiting it should grant us a better understanding of Richelieu's motives and the context of his policy decisions. As a figure that will be part of our story for some time, it's only fair to provide you with a proper introduction to the man who played such a pivotal role in French history and in the shaping of the Thirty Years' War. The assassination of King Henry IV in 1610 robbed France of its dynamic, guiding force just as Europe was dividing into armed camps. The assassination could have facilitated disaster, or another resumption of the wars of religion, which had shattered the old position of France. Yet, for a variety of reasons, the removal of King Henry did not mean the end of his policies at home or abroad. With Louis XIII only a child, The most important task was the establishment of a regency, a task which was fulfilled by Henry's widow, Marie de' Medici. Marie allied herself with Henry's old advisors and proved adept at balancing the ambitions and inclinations of these figures for the next seven years until Louis XIII came of age. By acting with impressive speed, Marie managed to cut off the nobility and princes of the blood who could have acted as her competition. Marie's grip on power was assured, and she was not to relinquish it without a great struggle, one which would eventually cost her the relationship with her son. In October 1614, the French Regency government made a statement of its foreign policy goals and concerns before the Estates General. Within the speech performed by the French Chancellor, several important points were highlighted. The Chancellor spoke for a whole hour, and in that speech he outlined a commitment to peace rather than to any conflict in the near future. The speech can be considered a kind of balancing act. It was declared that France would consummate alliances and treaties with several states, it would support the interests of Protestants and Catholics in the Holy Roman Empire, and it would promote pacific relations among the states of North Italy and within the Swiss cantons. England, Scotland, Spain, Savoy, Venice, all these powers and more were mentioned recent conflicts in the Ulic-Cleave succession crisis and between the Duke of Savoy and Mantua over the issue of Montferrat in North Italy had brought forward the importance of an informed and effective diplomacy. Concluding his speech, the Chancellor insisted that French policy had preserved the dignity of France and that no deal had been made which would compromise the prestige of the French crown. Taken alone, the speech before the three estates of France represents an important snapshot of French policy on the eve of the Thirty Years' War. Yet, the speech is important for another reason. While several contemporaries noted only the duration of the speech and did not concern themselves much with its contents, one figure who did make an actual copy of what the Chancellor had said was a deputy of the First Estate, the First Estate being the clergy, the Bishop of Luçon, Richelieu. At this point in his life, Armand Jean du Plessis had yet to take on the red robes of a cardinal, or even to acquire the reputation which would enable him, within the decade, to assume the premiership of France at his king's discretion. 
Richelieu was born in Paris on the 9th of September 1585, in the final days of the Valois monarchy, and he would set himself the task of making the Bourbon monarchy every bit its superior. Richelieu did not acquire the Cardinalate until 1622, yet he had been no stranger to the church before that date. His family had a claim on the bishopric of Luzon, and the young Richelieu abandoned plans for a career in the French army to fulfil the wishes of his late mother and laying claim to its offices. Before long, it was evident that Richelieu was talented, driven, and intelligent. He applied himself diligently to the task of learning theology, immersing his mind in the inner workings of clerical administration, and bringing some notoriety and prosperity to the bishopric which he called home. His progress made an impression, and his arrival in the Estates General of France in 1614 brought his talents to the attention of the Queen Mother, Marie de Medici. This proved to be only the beginning of a life constantly in tune with the French royal family, and with the Queen Mother able to recognise ability when it was present, Richelieu was appointed Secretary of State in 1617. The situation facing Richelieu in the international arena was captured most eloquently by Henri de Rohan, a leading French noble who would later fight against Richelieu as military leader of the Huguenots. Rohan assessed the situation thus. There are in Christendom two powers like opposite poles, on whom peace and war between the other states depend, the House of France and Spain. Spain, with her sudden vast increase of strength, can conceal from no one that her aim is supreme power in Europe and the erection of a new world monarchy in the Occident. The House of France must provide the equipoise. The other powers ally themselves with one or other of these two great states, each in accordance with its own interests. The assessment was concise and greatly simplified, but it was also clear to any student of foreign policy that analysed the situation in 1617. France was still recovering from her earlier trials, such as the wars of religion in the later 16th century, and Spanish power was everywhere dedicated to keeping France weak and maintaining the Habsburg dynasty at the very summit of its powers. There was nothing for France to do for the moment but bide its time, repair its defences, and prepare for the showdown which was certain to come in the future. Yet Richelieu was not yet in a position where he could guide French foreign policy. Amidst the eruption of the Bohemian Revolt the following year in 1618, France was in turmoil over the machinations of court parties, led by Marie de Medici on the one hand, and King Louis XIII, who had recently come of age, on the other. The tension between mother and son had reached such a point that Richelieu was required to mediate between the two parties. In August 1619, on the eve of Frederick of the Palatinate accepting the Bohemian crown, Richelieu's mediation appeared to have paid off. The Treaty of Angoulême was signed, bringing to a halt any potential conflict between either side's supporters. And just in time, since Richelieu was next faced with the eruption of the first of many Huguenot revolts in 1620. This revolt ended following the inconclusive siege of Montpellier in 1622, and the Treaty of Montpellier granted the Huguenots their fortresses of Montauban and La Rochelle, as well as religious rights. So long as the Huguenots retained these fortresses, they would be in a position to threaten the integrity of the French kingdom. Yet, the crown did not seem equal to the task of delivering a comprehensive defeat to the Huguenots, 
At least not yet. It should be pointed out that Richelieu did not wish to destroy the Huguenots out of any sense of religious fervour. He was instead driven by the need to stabilise the realm and take from the hands of the rebellious that excuse which religion might offer. An interlude between the First and Second Huguenot revolts enabled the French government to focus its attention on foreign policy. Specifically, two issues loomed into view. The first was the opportunity provided by the breakdown of Anglo-Spanish negotiations, which fostered discussion and negotiation between London and Paris over the potential union of Henrietta Maria, the sister of King Louis XIII, with Prince Charles. The negotiations proved fruitful in the end, far more than those arranged between Charles and the Infanta Maria, who herself was wed to the son of Emperor Ferdinand, because the Habsburgs just had to keep it in the family, of course. The negotiation of the marriage contract reflected the renewed French interests in outmaneuvering Spain by taking advantage of her failures. Yet it also reflected Richelieu's views on foreign policy, which he was later to elucidate upon in his political testament, saying... States receive so much benefit from uninterrupted foreign negotiations, if they conducted with prudence, that it is unbelievable unless it is known from experience. I confess that I realised this truth only five or six years after I had been employed in the direction of your affairs. He is speaking to Louis XIII, by the way, in this. But I am now so convinced of its validity that I dare say emphatically that it is absolutely necessary to the well-being of the state to negotiate ceaselessly either openly or secretly, and in all places, even in those from which no present fruits are reaped and still more in those for which no future prospects as yet seem likely. I can truthfully say that I have seen in my time the nature of affairs change completely for both France and the rest of Christendom as a result of my having, under the authority of the king, put this principle into practice, something up to then completely neglected in this realm. To maintain an open and productive correspondence with as many powers as possible, this was for Richelieu one of the major lessons he had learned from diplomacy, as he then understood it. By maintaining relationships with a host of states and potentates, one possessed more options when it came time to formulate important foreign policy decisions. This universal truth of diplomacy was even applied to Franco-Spanish talks for a brief period over 1626 to 28, when the foolhardy foreign policy decision of the Duke of Buckingham to intervene in the Siege of La Rochelle led England to declare war on France. Waging an unsuccessful war against France and Spain simultaneously must be considered a forgotten disaster of King Charles's reign, but it did force Richelieu to improvise and adapt to the circumstances. In the strange circumstances which the English declaration of war had created then, France and Spain were technically allies, even for a little while, since they faced the same enemy in the English. To overcome the common foe, Richelieu was not above fostering even a temporary détente between Paris and Madrid to facilitate a smoother pursuit of the war against England. His pragmatic approach towards foreign affairs granted him the flexibility to pick his battles and postpone others until the time was right. The negotiation of the marriage treaty with England was the first introduction many foreign officials had to Richelieu's abilities, and until the conclusion of said negotiations, the cardinal distinguished himself. As the historian Robert E. Shimp discerned, 
Combining the qualities of stratagem, finesse, ruthlessness, and fixity of purpose, the Cardinal was beginning to turn statecraft into a highly specialised occupation, an occupation in which he had no equal in Europe. And speaking of picking his battles, the second initiative which Richelieu pursued was the occupation of the Val Tallinn, that critically important alpine valley which housed the Spanish road. Occupying the Val Tallinn and cooperating with the locals in the region granted France an impressive strategic position, and it suggested that France was preparing to become more active in the developing conflict in Germany as well. The Duke of Savoy had encircled Genoa, and the Spanish road was cut, which greatly hampered Spain's ability to supply its forces in the Spanish Netherlands, who were, at this point, in the process of besieging Breda. At the same time, it was known that France had promised financial aid to the newly formed Hague Alliance of Denmark, England and the Netherlands. This before, of course, the collapse of English foreign policy led to the alienation of Anglo-French relations. Richelieu had been named Cardinal on the 5th of September 1622, a prelude to his assumption of further office, the premiership, two years later, in 1624, and he had plainly wasted no time in making his presence felt in foreign affairs. We're going to talk more about Cardinal Richelieu's brilliance in just a bit, but before we do that, let's talk about Matchlock and the Embassy. Matchlock and the Embassy is a historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War, more specifically our narrative starts in 1622. We follow the exploits of one Matthew Locke as he basically lands in Europe to find out the truth of what happened to his parents because they had been murdered and, well, yeah, he wants to know why. Along the way, he bumps into some pretty troubling things, such as a huge conspiracy involving men clad in black masks and some ominous figures who may or may not be involved in his life. The reviews already have been really, really good and really promising and, yes, of course, really encouraging to me. I've already said that my wife and my dad both really enjoyed it, and yes, they are biased sources, but Anna has assured me that even if Matchlock dies on its ass and nobody wants to buy it, she will insist on me continuing the story because she wants to know what happens. So, basically, no matter what happens here, it's win-win. I'm still going to write Matchlock, and even if only a few people buy it, then that is still a, well, it's a huge plus for me either way. But I have confidence that it will be successful. Already we've sold several copies even before making the official announcement in podcast format that the book is actually available. And yeah, you can check out that announcement episode because it's the one that came out just before this one. Therein you can listen to a new and improved prologue which has changed even in the month since I last read it out. And you can also hear extra details such as how patrons benefit from this new Matchlock infusion of content. I also have a newsletter going, Matchlock Messengers, and I'm sure there'll be a link in the description below if you like that kind of stuff. Basically, you can expect more 30 Years War content and the latest news where Matchlock is concerned. I have learned in the last, well, I've basically known this for quite a while, but sometimes social media can be very, very hit and miss, particularly Facebook pages. So it's difficult to get announcements out there, and that's why newsletters really are very handy in that regard. But yeah, if you want to go and get Matchlock for yourself, then just simply search it and you can get it in all the usual bookstores. I would also recommend if you want to get it for free, then just head to your library and request a copy of the book. I still get paid for that, by the way. It's pretty cool. 
I also really want to encourage you to do that because libraries are great. And the same goes for actual local bookstores. If they don't have it in stock, request them to get it in stock. If you feel that strongly about not buying on Jeff Bezos's forum, then go for it. Make a point of going to your local bookstore and doing it. And you'll feel extra good when that fresh copy of the book is in your hands. I myself have recently ordered my author copies, and I'm sure that I will in time be doing some kind of giveaway, so keep an eye out for that. But otherwise, matchlockbooks.com, all lowercase and all one word, is where you can go to find out more about the book. And you can also buy the ebook off me directly if you're into that kind of thing, and you just want to send the money directly to me rather than anyone else. Although I will say there are pros and cons of doing this. If you buy it on Amazon, then my book's rank will be increased and more people will see it. And then you can also leave a verified review. So there are pros and cons either way. Reviews, of course, are the lifeblood of this book. Any independent author relies on reviews for social proof. Of course, you can let me know what you thought of the book directly by emailing me at a new address, matchlock at wdfpodcast.com. Alrighty guys, thanks for your patience. Really excited about Matchlock, but let's get back to the episode. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Considering all these feverish activities undertaken by Cardinal Richelieu, and the constant presence of rumours, Madrid, Brussels and Vienna must surely have wondered when the declaration against them would come from France. But Richelieu knew that the bare facts of the moment prevented France from making such a Herculean commitment to the then-developing Thirty Years' War. Richelieu had taken advantage of opportunities to undercut the Habsburgs, and he remained committed to supporting the enemies of Spain, above all in the Netherlands but the weighty declaration of war against the Habsburg dynasty would be delayed for another decade. So long as the fifth column of the Huguenots remained at large, secure in their fortresses, the integrity and security of France could never be safe. Thus, Richelieu moved to erase the political independence of the Huguenots once and for all. He would reduce the potency of their bite by pulling out their most formidable teeth. 
<laughs> At the top of this list was La Rochelle, the bastion of the Huguenots for generations. With this goal in mind, French defensive works surrounding La Rochelle had not been taken down and had in fact been reinforced, while the French Royal Navy was said to be preparing an attack on the Huguenot bastion to eliminate the threat once and for all. Amidst such rumours, and frustrated at the Crown's lax application of the earlier Treaty of Montpellier, the Huguenots launched their second revolt in early 1625. The new revolt was characterised largely by naval actions. The Huguenot fleet sailed to Brittany, smashed the Royal Fleet at Blavet in January, and seized the island of Ray just off the coast of La Rochelle. Louis XIII was forced to respond, and Ray was taken from the Huguenots following a campaign in September of 1625. By spring 1626, a new treaty, the Treaty of Paris, was signed, and peace appeared at last to have arrived in France. This second Huguenot revolt had given Richelieu a nasty shock. It had erupted with sufficient force to necessitate relinquishing the Valtelline, as these crown soldiers were badly needed elsewhere. The incident had confirmed his earlier belief that the Huguenots would never give their crown peace and that they had to be destroyed. Henri de Rohan and his brother Benjamin, two of the leaders of the Second Revolt, had ostracised themselves from the French crown, and the latter figure even went into exile in England. Richelieu's distrust of both men, exacerbated by the rumours that they had opened negotiations with Spain, moved the wily cardinal to act. With the king's army engaging with the Huguenots throughout 1625, Richelieu initiated a pamphlet campaign to complement the military. Interestingly, throughout the course of this pamphlet campaign, Richelieu levelled attacks at militant Protestants fighting for the Huguenot cause, but he also saved some venom for the Jesuits, accusing both of undermining the French realm. In the meantime, Richelieu worked earnestly to bring the Second Revolt to an end. Much like the first peace treaty though, this Treaty of Paris in 1626 was only a temporary fix. Richelieu was more than ever convinced that France would be unable to pursue a determined policy so long as the Huguenots could hold the king to ransom. They would have to be dealt with, and the only true means to destroy their power was to attack their main bastion directly at La Rochelle. Even before the arrival of Protestantism to France, La Rochelle had distinguished itself as a city that was determined to acquire independent rights and govern free from royal interference. La Rochelle was granted political and economic privileges which set it apart from others. It owed fealty to no overlord save for the King of France, and its citizens enjoyed extensive tax exemptions while benefiting from the fruits of a budding trade network. As early as 1207, the citizens of La Rochelle were even exempted from having to suffer the quartering of a royal garrison in their midst. These privileges fluctuated with the centralisation and consolidation of the Valois monarchy in the early 1500s, but by and large, the citizens of La Rochelle proved adept at weathering these changes to their contract with their king, and they reversed many of these changes through negotiation. For example, when a reorganisation of the king's lands removed the city's exemption from taxation in 1535, these citizens bided their time and simply purchased this privilege back from the crown 20 years later. With the eruption of the French Wars of Religion officially in 1562, La Rochelle was caught in a difficult position. Should her mostly Protestant citizens support the cause of Condé, the Protestant King of Navarre, 
or should they remain loyal to the French crown? In the event, the citizens of La Rochelle felt forced to choose Condé's standard, thanks to the perceived threat which the garrisoning of a royal army nearby posed. Fearing that these soldiers of the crown intended to force Catholicism on them, in 1568, the citizens of La Rochelle elected to fly into open rebellion. From this point in 1568, until the capture of their city 60 years later, La Rochelle was a bastion of French Protestantism with a history of defiance, independence and enterprise to match. By late 1626, it was apparent that Europe was undergoing a kind of change. In Germany, the forces of Wallenstein and Count Tilly had dealt the first of many decisive blows to King Christian IV of Denmark, and the supremacy of Emperor Ferdinand was slowly being established. In the Netherlands, the Spanish onslaught had stalled due to a lack of funds, a situation which was exacerbated by the renewed Spanish interest in the Mantuan succession of the following year. Charles Gonzaga, the Duke of Nevers, had a valid claim on the Mantuan inheritance, which the Spanish planned to contest alongside the opportunistic Duke of Savoy, notwithstanding Spain's inability to afford another conflict. Charles Gonzaga, the French candidate, had an interesting career even before he journeyed to North Italy to claim what was his by right of inheritance. He had led the French Royal Navy during its loss to the Huguenots in the Battle of Blavet in January 1625, but this was not destined to be the last time that his fate was tied up with that of the Huguenots. As Nevers travelled, plots were underway in England to resurrect the Huguenot revolt and empower the French Protestants against the crown. Neither King Louis XIII nor his indefatigable minister Richelieu could allow this to happen, but one thing at a time. If France was to contest the encroachment of Spain into North Italy, in league with the Duke of Savoy, then France would first have to resolve her domestic woes, which were epitomised in the insufferable defiance of the citizens of La Rochelle. By hook or by crook, Richelieu knew that the city would have to be taken for the crown. Then and only then could France focus its energies on Italy. The arrival of an English force in summer of 1627 on the island of Ray off the coast of La Rochelle, joined by that of the Huguenot exile Benjamin de Rohan, simplified matters. Before anything else was attempted, this foreign English army would have to be ejected from French soil. Richelieu's career, and perhaps his life, depended on his odds of success, while his king depended on him now more than ever before. We will examine this story in the next episode, History Friends, but until then... My name is Zach, podcaster and historical fiction author, thank you very much, and this has been episode 43 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show. Have a great week, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.